This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for March 9th, 2016. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. When the speech was over, uh, the president, it was like a, a, a great uh, load had been lifted off his back. It was like he uh, had free, was free at last, and that he and he could see the end. And so he really thought that he was going to uh, be able uh, to re, to get a peace agreement in Vietnam. That was the real reason that we started talking about not running. Our guest is James Jones, a former member of Congress and a U.S. ambassador to Mexico. But our conversation focuses on a historic event 50 years ago this month. He served as President Lyndon Johnson's appointment secretary and shares with us for the first time his account of the events which led to LBJ's decision not to seek re-election. We begin on March 31st, 1968. I shall not seek. And I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. But let men everywhere know, however, that a strong and a confident and a vigilant America stands ready tonight to seek an honorable peace and stands ready tonight to defend an honored cause. March 31st, 1968, 50 years ago. James Jones, no aide was closer to President Johnson than you, serving four years as his appointment secretary, equivalent to the White House chief of staff. Walk us through the process that President Johnson undertook to decide not to seek re-election. Well, it actually started about seven months previous in September of 1967. The president said, uh, told me he wanted to go to the ranch that weekend, and he'd like to have John Conley, who was then a, a Texas uh, governor, to come to the ranch. And just uh, Lady Bird Johnson, the president, uh, John Conley, Governor Conley, myself, and uh, the president's top secretary, Marie Famer, uh, were at the ranch that whole weekend. As uh, the president really relaxed at the ranch by riding around the ranch, looking at the deer, looking at the cattle, etc. cetera, uh, particularly the three of them, Mrs. Johnson, the president, and Governor Conley, rode around and discussed whether he should or should not run for re-election. And then at mealtimes, uh, we would all discuss it. And uh, the president uh, asked Conley what he should do. Conley said he was not going to run for governor again in 68, and he thought the president should not run for re-election. That discussion went on. Nothing was concluded, and then uh, we went back to Washington uh, in the White House. Periodically, the president would ask me to come in at the end of the day and uh, just have a drink or, or, or talk about issues, and the, the issue of whether he should run or not came up a few times. 
we, if you go fast forward then to December of 1967, the Christmas season, we all went back to the ranch. Well, we had had a round-the-world trip and then went to the ranch. And, um, and uh, again, the decision was being discussed. The president asked me to get Horace Busby, who was one of his longtime speechwriters, and, uh, and draft a statement that he was not going to run for re-election, but not to tell anybody about it. So there were very few people, I'd say less than a half dozen, who had any inkling that this was even being seriously considered. We uh, had the speech drafted, I mean, the, what he called the peroration, the final announcement that he wouldn't run. Uh, and in the meantime, I was coordinating the development of the State of the Union speech for January 1968. Uh, we kept the speechwriters for the State of the Union separate from Horace Busby. And uh, so the president was planning to announce at the end of the State of the Union speech in January 68 that he was not going to run. Uh, we had everything ready. We did not have any of this on teleprompter. And uh, we had a separate little piece of paper with uh, the I shall not run. Uh, we drive up to the Capitol, and uh, the president gives his State of the Union speech. And, and he did not have the peroration. He did not, did not declare he wasn't going to run. So we're riding back to the Capitol. And at this time, I'm 28 years old. And, you know, you know everything when you're 28 years old. And um, so I uh, basically asked, you know, he, he didn't use this peroration. He said, oh, he said, I left it on my night table and I forgot to bring it up. Well, to my way of thinking, um, I thought he, he had decided not to run. He decided, he decided to run and not to give this speech. So we went on in uh, the first three months of um, 1968, um, and he started asking for different Issue, different questions, uh, different uh, information. For example, he asked us to have uh, a study done as to when Harry Truman announced that he was not going to run for re-election in 1952. Turned out it was March 30th. Uh, he had some special polls made. Uh, Ollie Quayle was our pollster in, in that year, and uh, we asked Ollie to run the president on a on a head-to-head -head against all the possible Democratic and Republican uh, candidates, which would be Gene McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, Richard Nixon, etc. And uh, the president beat all of them in those polls. This was about 10 days before his March 31 announcement. And I think he did that because he wanted to have in his own mind that he was not being run out of office, that if he did run, as he thought he would, uh, win that he could win. Uh, so he hadn't asked for an information like that. We get to Friday, March 29, and the president called a mini press conference in the Rose Garden and basically said he's going to make a, a nationwide televised speech on Sunday evening, the 31st, and uh, it was going to be an important speech. Well, we spent the rest of that weekend working on that speech and uh, and and again, taking Horace Busby back and putting him in, putting him in the Indian Treaty Room, separate from all the speechwriters. He was in the in the mansion, not not the Indian Treaty Room, but the the uh, uh, Lincoln bedroom, which was adjacent to the president's bedroom. And uh, so Horace was looking, or was working, 
on the, the end of the speech. Nobody else knew about it. And um, uh, even before we got to that, on the 29th, after the little mini press conference, he asked me to get uh, George Christian, who was then the press secretary, and Marvin Watson, who had been my predecessor as appointment secretary, but who was now running the putative campaign for re-election, ask us, three of us, to come in for a drink in the little office off the Oval Office. And at that point, he we again talked about whether he should or should not run. And at the end, he said, well, what do you fellows think? And we split, two to one. Two of us thought he should run. One, George Christian, thought he should not run. And we had no decisions at that point. So we continued to work on the speech. On uh, Saturday, it was at the White House. We went through several revisions of the speech. Sunday morning, he called me at, at my apartment in, in southwest Washington and asked me to come down to the White House that he and Lucy were going to go to church uh, that morning at St. Dominic's Church over in southwest Washington, asked me to go with them. And so while we were in church, he said, uh, uh, ask the secret service to get the peroration, the I will not run part, off his night table and, uh, and bring it to him. And then also call Hubert Humphrey, who was the vice president, and ask him to delay his departure for Mexico City that day because he wanted to come over and see him. And so in those days, the vice president didn't have a home. So he was living in an apartment in the same complex where I was living in southwest Washington. Um, so after church, we went over to the, the Humphrey apartment. Uh, uh, Lucy went in with Mrs. Humphrey into another room, and the president, the vice president, and I uh, went into the little study. The president asked him to read the speech, and, and uh, Pre Vice President Humphrey read the speech, and he got to the end, and he started really just palpitating. He could hardly get his breath. And uh, and President Johnson said to him, if you're going to run, you need to start tomorrow. But I have not finally decided whether I'm going to run or not. Uh, I will have Jim call you uh, in Mexico City tonight and with my final decision. And uh, so that we, we left it at that. The interesting One of the interesting things, as you know, uh, uh, Vice President Humphrey ran for president in 1960, and he was defeated— in West Virginia, in a very big surprise, by the Kennedy, by Pre by Jack Kennedy, and uh, so when President said, "If you're going to run, you need to get started right away," tears welted up in his eyes, and he said, "There's no way I can beat the Kennedys," which was an interesting observation of, of him going into the campaign with that. So um, we went through the day on Sunday. He had uh, some personal friends, Arthur Cram, who had been a major fundraiser for him, was the head of United Artists at the time, and Mrs. Cram, uh, they came to the White House. They were part of a discussion through Sunday, and then uh, uh, we went back and forth, and then uh, I think the speech was around 8 o'clock, around 6 o'clock, the president asked me to come over to the mansion, and, and we went over the speech one last time, and he said, now you can put it on the teleprompter. And this was this had been such a tightly uh, guarded secret that nobody really knew about it. I was telling uh, one of your colleagues here that uh, Bob Fleming, who was an assistant press secretary, I asked Bob to sit to the side of the desk in the Oval Office where the president made the speech and, and watch the teleprompter. 
and if it happened to go blank on him, to put the right page in front of the president so he could read from that. So Bob knew something was up, but he didn't know what. And uh, so I was back in my office, which was next door to the Oval Office, and Bob comes racing in. He he had flipped through the pages to see what was what was new and different about it. He got to the the end of the speech, and he he started just getting not being able to get his breath. And he left the Oval Office because he was afraid it was going to be a, a ruckus while the president was speaking. So uh, it, it was it was an interesting evening. But when the speech was over, uh, the president it was like a a, a great. Uh, load had been lifted off his back. It was like he uh, had free, was free at last and that he, and he could see the end. And so he really thought that he was going to uh, be able uh, to, re, to get a peace agreement in Vietnam. That was the real reason that we started talking about not running. Uh, he had, he had um, mentioned several times different reasons why he shouldn't run which I thought were bogus. Uh, but, for example, he said that his father and grandfather had both died at age 64 and that, uh, that uh, he was going to die at age 64 and he'd be president and he didn't want to die in office. Uh, turned out he did die at age 64, but I think he, is, he, he did not take care of his health as he should have. And I never, I never verified whether his father and grandfather died at that age, but that was one of the excuses. Another excuse was that um, that he never appreciated and knew his daughters while they were growing up as much because he was always on the run, always doing things political, and uh, he really wanted to know his grandson, grandchildren, uh, who at that time he had one, and he just doted over that, that little boy. Uh, that was another reason why he said he didn't want to run. But the final analysis, he thought uh, very much that if he were a candidate for re-election, that he might pull his punches if he had an opportunity to get a peace settlement in Vietnam. And he did not want to be put in that kind of a position. He thought if he were free of politics, that he could do whatever is necessary to reach a peace agreement. So that was the real reason he didn't run. Along those lines, this is from October of 1968. It's a conversation between President Johnson and Everett Dirksen, Republican from Illinois, a mention of Richard Nixon, who was at that time the Republican nominee, and the issue of Vietnam. Let's listen. Now, I have told Nixon, and I repeat to you, that uh, I'm trying as hard as I know how to uh, get to peace in Vietnam as quickly as I can. For that reason, I am not running. Now, when I have anything that uh, I believe justifies or warrants a consultation, I will initiate it. As you hear that conversation, your reaction, James Jones? Well, in October, maybe 10 days, two weeks before the election, um, we were pursuing, or the president was pursuing, a peace agreement uh, in Paris, and we had the North Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese, etc., and um, and the president really thought he was going to reach an agreement. Along about that time, uh, our intelligence sources intercepted a phone call from um, President Agnew, Vice President Agnew's uh, uh, campaign stop in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Madame Chenault in Washington. 
Uh, and then shortly thereafter, Madame Chenault had a phone call to President Tu of South Vietnam, which in essence said, hold out, hold off, uh, Nixon will give you a better deal. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the negotiations just came to a halt. So basically undercutting President yeah, Johnson. That's right. And, of course, uh, the president was furious at this, and he did have— uh, I had talked to uh, Bryce Harlow, who was very close to President, uh, Vice, uh, to Mr. Nixon, and basically tell him that this is going, if if this happens again, it's going to be totally publicized. Uh, President Johnson decided not to leak this or tell this to anyone. Why? He said that if Nixon were elected anyway, he would be impeached right off the bat because this is a treasonable offense, and he did not want to see the presidency or that institution uh, disrupted that way. That was the main reason. Um, so he didn't tell anybody. Very few people even knew about this. Uh, but it did, it, in my judgment, had that not happened, it, uh, we would have had a peace agreement before the president left office. We get the impression through history that uh, <clears throat> it was a tortured last year for Lyndon Johnson, but you were with him. What was his mood? What was he like? What was going through his mind with regard to Vietnam, the election of 68, and of course, at that same time, the assassination of Dr. King and later Senator Robert Kennedy? Mm -hmm. Well, it was a very, very tough year. Uh, first of all, in January, right off the bat, uh, you had two instances that uh, caused real problems. One was the capture of the uh, Puebla, the uh, sort of spy ship we had off, uh, off North Korea. Um, and the other uh, was the Tet Offensive, which um, was, in military terms, uh, the, the North Vietnamese were defeated, but in political terms, it was such a shock that uh, back here, it was considered as a win for North Vietnam. Um, so those two started off the year. And then when you get to, to April 1, April 2, uh, Dr. King was assassinated. Um, then uh, the, the Robert Kennedy assassination, June 4th or 6th, that's right in that period. Uh, so it was a very disruptive year. And that those events caused more demonstrations and more um, uh, disruptive demonstrations where property and, and what have you was destroyed. Um, and so there was, nothing, there was nothing settled about that particular year. What were his personal feelings towards Bobby Kennedy? He never expressed them uh, to me or to those around us, but we knew what his, his feelings were. He felt that Bobby Kennedy uh, would not have been elected in 64 in New York had Johnson not had such a landslide victory up there. He felt that Bobby Kennedy was constantly undermining him and, um, and disrespecting him. And he felt that uh, Bobby Kennedy was different from either Jack Kennedy or Ted Kennedy, uh, whom he liked, each, uh, each of those brothers. So what all went into that and that 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 feeling, those bad feelings, uh, happened before I worked for the president, and uh, I can't comment on that. I don't know, but um, it was a very strained relationship. Uh, I know that uh, 
uh, after, I think um, it was early April, is after the president announced he was not going to run for re-election. Uh, we had Bobby Kennedy and Ted Sorensen down to the White House, and the president uh, met with him in the cabinet room, and um, he was very stern with him, basically lecturing President lecturing Bobby Kennedy on not doing things that's going to interrupt or disrupt uh, a movement toward a peace settlement in in Vietnam, and uh, uh, it was you, you could tell then that the the two people uh, did not have the warmest of relationships. And of course, that settlement did not take place in 1968. Right. Take us back to the evening of March 31st. The speech is over. You're in the White House. Paint a picture. What was it like? What was Lady Bird Johnson saying to President Johnson? What was the interactions with President Johnson? What were you seeing and hearing? Well, after the speech, the president went into the little office off the Oval Office and and received and made uh, phone calls. Um, One of the interesting phone calls was to Nelson Rockefeller because uh, our Rockefeller to him, he was the governor of New York. And uh, Johnson had developed a, a warm relationship with Governor Rockefeller uh, and had even encouraged him in this night to, to run for election. I suspect of all the people who are running, the one that uh, President Johnson thought might be the best successor to him was Nelson Rockefeller, which was an interesting observation. Uh, Lady Bird Johnson was absolutely elated because she felt he should not run. She had felt that for quite a while. And uh, so she and and the daughters were both just uh, uh, congratulating and and feeling very warm. The president, uh, having wrestled with this decision for for months, uh, felt really relieved that the decision was made. He, He... his step was much lighter. His um, his attitude was was much brighter, and so I think he was relieved. Um, we, I was I was handling phone calls mostly. The Tallulah Bankhead was one of the first uh, who called, and she was just distraught. Uh, I obviously had to talk to uh, Pre- Vice President Humphrey. I had called. We had several of the cabinet minister or cabinet secretaries. On, a, on the same airplane going to Asia. I think it was to Japan for some sort of a conference. And I called Dean Rusk, who was Secretary of State, and told him what the president had done. And his response was uh, was about, thank you very much. <laughs> so he just took it in stride. He was, he was a person of few words anyway. Uh, so I was making those calls and, uh, and to uh, different members of the Congress uh, to let them know. So... Um, it, it was it was a it was a happy feeling, and as I say, it was almost as though uh, President Johnson was on his way out of jail, <laughs> because he always felt in that particular year, he always felt very confined uh, by the White House, and um, so it was it was a feeling of freedom. One other conversation on the evening of March thirty first. This was with Willard Wirtz, who served as his labor secretary. Mm-hmm. Let's listen. Mr. President, Bill yeah. Words. Yes, Bill, how are you? I'm glad to hear you. That was the greatest contribution to peace in, in all of history. <laughs> well, I hope so. We sure are going to work it. it, uh, it it's simply magnificent. Beyond that, I only want to tell you that uh, at the right time, uh, I'll be doing everything in my power to uh, reverse that decision. And, uh, no, I think no. I'm smart enough to uh, 
do. I know that uh, right now is not the time, and I don't. I didn't want you to say anything. I just want you to know how I feel about it. Well, it's not reversible, but God bless you, and you've been in there, and I'm awfully grateful to you. Well, it, it puts you in a position to uh, to do what Woodrow Wilson uh, wasted the opportunity to do, and what some other people have wasted the opportunity to do. And I just want to salute a great man. Thank you, Bill. You're a wonderful colleague, and you've been awfully source of, been a great source of strength to me all the time in every way. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. President Johnson with his labor secretary. Again, it's uh, important to underscore that this was a shock to the nation. It stunned the world. Right. And to his cabinet and to most of the people who were in government. Uh, It was really a well-kept secret. And uh, Bill Wurtz was a wonderful person. He was – President Kennedy brought him in as labor secretary, and he stayed on with President Johnson for the whole – uh, Kennedy Johnson, eight years, and uh, he was he was just a very wise person and a very decent person uh, and, and very smart. James Jones, I have to ask you about these recordings because we air them every Saturday on C-SPAN Radio, right. and it is uh, often the most commented part of our programming as people listen to the inner workings of the Johnson White House. Why did it come about, and as you listen to these tapes, what are your thoughts? Well, President Johnson wanted the tapes, and I, I think he wanted them for several reasons, uh, probably his own self-protection, number one. But he was—the uh, interesting thing about President Johnson, his motivation was history. How would history record his administration and his presidency? And he wanted that for, for history. Um, and it, it, when we left office, he said at the appropriate time he wants these released— because he wants the he wants the uh, the American people to see his administration, as he said, uh, with the hide off, uh, the, both the warts and the good things that the administration did, so that they could really assess his administration. And these tapes were one of the things that I find wonderful about them. Uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson was not a good television person. He never warmed up to a camera. He would warm up like. Wonderful, very much so, uh, with people face to face. He he was very much a people person, but on camera he was very stiff uh, and did not come across well. And would people would say, you know, they they would have their negative opinion of him after he had made an address on television or what have you. I would say, I wish there was a way for you to see the Lyndon Johnson that we see uh, privately. He is warm, he's funny, he's smart, he uh, is very committed, and, but you don't, you don't see that on television because he's, he's, he's too intimidated uh, by the camera and how people might perceive him. He did not want to be perceived as some corn politician. He really wanted to be, uh, be perceived equal to what he believed the, the office of the presidency should be. And what these tapes have done is to be able to show the Lyndon Johnson that we got to know privately uh, in a way that uh, that uh, would not have been able without the tapes. And finally, at the time, you were 28 years old in March yeah. of 1968. As you reflect 50 years later, that moment where Lyndon Johnson announced that he was not seeking re-election and the events that followed in the days after, what were you thinking? Well, I did not... It's interesting because uh, I grew up in a uh, in a town in Oklahoma, Muskogee, Oklahoma. My dad was a postal rural postal carrier, rural mail carrier, 
And uh, it's the kind of thing that just happens. It's not any, uh, I had no preordained reason to be at the White House. But I was so busy, and there were so many things that could go wrong that uh, I never really got to think about what it was like to be there. The only one time it was is one time in that year, actually, that uh, uh, we I was called from the situation room, and there was some sort of, a, I don't remember the issue now, but there was a, uh, a situation report on uh, foreign activities that I felt I had to wake up the president. It was about 2 in the morning. I felt I had to come down and wake up the president and give him this, this message. And as I was walking through the, the mansion in the, in the family quarters upstairs, um, I looked at some of the portraits up there on the walls. I thought that was the only time I was able to say, what are you doing here? Aren't you a lucky, lucky guy? And uh, so I really didn't try to analyze what am I, what, what's this all about. I was just scrambling to get everything done. James Jones served as President Johnson's appointment secretary, a close aide equivalent today to White House Chief of Staff, went on to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Ambassador to Mexico. Thank you very much for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio Studios. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. Be sure to follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter to learn about upcoming episodes. And by the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the program, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.